are going to talk about another viral illness. And the first speaker will be uh, Susan, uh, Susan Nauji, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke, and she works in the VA hospital. And she's going to talk about direct-acting antivirals for hepatitis C infections. Susan? <laughs> it's all right. I snuck up on you. All right. Well, thank you. And I appreciate everyone still sitting here this afternoon at almost 3 o'clock. Um, I know it's rough to sit through uh, this many talks all day, but I do think that they saved the best for last, um, at least the best virus for last, that is. Um, so I'm actually curious, curious to know how many folks here currently treat hepatitis C, whether co-infection or mono-infection, just a show of hands. Currently treaters of HCV. Okay. And how many of you think in the next five years you will be treating hepatitis C? So a, little bit, a few more people raising their hands now. Very good. I think we would certainly agree with that. And um, those of you who have been following HCV know that uh, the past few years have been very exciting. We have our first um, two directly acting antivirals FDA approved, the protease inhibitors, both bosepravir and telaprevir. Um, behind that, we have close to 50 drugs in the pipeline. Um, those drugs include other directly acting antivirals, but also include host-directed uh, uh, compounds, including cyclophilin uh, A inhibitors, uh, microRNA inhibitors, and other interferon or interferon-like compounds. So it's a really exciting time. Um, there are also currently six randomized controlled trials of interferon sparing all oral combinations. And I think with the complexity, um, and as this becomes more complex, and as we have interferon sparing, many of us believe that HIV and ID providers will start treating more and more HCV mono-infected patients. And so really that's the purpose of trying to talk about those studies today. So as you all know, the goal of therapy for HCV is to achieve a sustained virologic response. That's the outcome that we look at for all of the clinical trials. And a sustained virologic response is a fully suppressed HCV viral load six months after the completion of therapy. But as you all know, oops, I'm going the wrong way. What we tell our patients is that this is actually a cure and that we do believe that HCV is a curable infection and that patients can, who can achieve SVR are able to maintain a fully suppressed viral load and no evidence of ongoing replication. So the one thing that I wanted to start with, and so there are a number of you who treat, so this is going to be a review for you, but for those of you who don't treat, um, if I went through all the clinical trials we're about to embark on, then it would be a little bit confusing without explaining the virologic um, or the viral kinetic markers that we use for determining um, whether or not someone's responded to therapy and ultimately now are used in what we call response-guided therapy for the new directly acting antivirals to determine the length of treatment for someone and whether or not indeed that person should continue on therapy at all. So um, we start here with initiation of treatment. The first viral kinetic marker that we have is the RVR, or rapid virologic response. This is a fully suppressed HCV RNA by week four in therapy um, and is a highly predictive marker, the highest positive predictive value for the ability to achieve a cure. What you'll find is that the terminology has changed slightly with the um, new directly acting antivirals and what we have, um, or what we call as an ERVR, or an extended rapid, viral, rapid virologic response, which is suppression by week four that continues through week 12 or week 24. And that's really what's now used in the package inserts. We also have this ERV, e, um, uh, EVR, which is an early virologic response. This is actually a marker at the 12 week time point and has the highest negative predictive value for the ability to achieve a cure and thus has been our primary um, a stopping rule for whether or not patients continue on PEG and ribotherapy. Because if they don't meet this criteria, there's no indication to continue tr treating or in some people's thoughts, torturing the patient. 
Um, so the, e, the EVR will change significantly for directly acting antivirals. So currently, if you were treating patients with PEG and RIBA, it would be a greater than 2 log 10 decline by week 12. This will no longer be the case for directly acting antivirals, and we'll talk about that. But ultimately, patients essentially need to achieve full viral suppression by week 12 with the directly acting antivirals, or they'll need to be discontinued. So that is a change in what has been previously the standard for a stopping rule. So then we have end of treatment. Patients discontinue treatment, usually at 48 weeks for genotype 1. And our SVR, again, is those patients who have a continued suppressed viral load by, by six months after the end of treatment. Our non-responders are those patients who are unable to meet that EVR, greater than 2 log 10 decline. These are patients who have minimal, minimal interferon responsiveness and thus do not usually continue past that 12-week time point. And we'll be talking about some of these patients later, which may be many of the patients that you have because they've already maybe received PEG and RIBA and have not responded. So I know you all know this very well, that the um, general response rates for HCV monoinfected patients genotype 1 with PEG and RIBA is about 40%. Obviously, PEG and RIBA also have significant AEs, and therefore there's been a very strong need to have better drugs that improve response rates and the adverse event profile, specifically in genotype 1 patients. We also know that response rates are much lower for specific ethnic backgrounds, including patients of African descent and patients of Latino descent, showing lower response rates in both of these groups in multiple randomized controlled trials with PEG and RIBA alone. We now know that about 50% of the reason for differences across um, racial backgrounds is because of a genetic polymorphism, the IL-28B polymorphism that localizes uh, to the interfer an interferon gene. It's an interferon type 3 gene that is involved in innate immunity to viral infections. <clears throat> the discovery of this genotype showed, or this, um, this uh, SNP showed, that patients who carry this SNP, um, it's a recessive SNP, so patients that carry this as a homozygote, um, have anywhere from two to four-fold improved response rates. And this was true whether you were of African descent, Latino descent, or of European descent. And again, explained 50% of the variation in differences by race. So just a quick introduction to the HCV virus. Um, so this is a, a viral genome that is ultimately translated and processed into 10 proteins several structural proteins, and then multiple non-structural proteins. And the reason that this is important is that it's these non-structural proteins that have been the focus of directly acting antiviral um, uh, development. Specifically, the NS3 serine protease, the NS5A, which is a protein that has no enzymatic activity but is clearly required for replication of the HCV virus, and then the NS5A RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. So it's these three sites that we'll be talking about today and are really some of the most exciting developments that are coming along in the HCV pipeline. So the first question, to make sure that you're all awake, is are the DAAs equally effective across all HCV genotypes? Just a yes or no. All right, excellent response. So the answer is definitely no. So now the follow-up question is, for which HCV genotypes are the directly acting antivirals most effective? Is it genotype 1, 2, and 3, or genotype 4? All right. 
So I always like it when you guys answer this way because then I know I can actually teach you something. So the answer in this case is, you know, type 1, at least for now. Um, and we'll talk about why that is. So we're going to start with the NS3 uh, protease inhibitors. So again, it's a serine protease, quite different than the HIV aspartyl protease, very different catalytic sites, and thus there is no cross-reactivity. Um, these are highly potent as a class of compounds that are highly potent class. The primary issue is that there's a very low barrier to resistance. Um, and so generally speaking, when, this, when these patients were given monotherapy, within 14 days, all patients had resistance. Um, so that is the limitation of the drug, and therefore clearly would have to be used either in combination with other DAAs or protected by the PEG and RIBA, which is ultimately how it was studied and, and went to the FDA. It primarily, they primarily have activity against you know, type 1, although the second-generation protease inhibitors will have PAN activity for all HCV genotypes, but the first two that are now FDA-approved are primarily genotype 1, some activity against genotype you know, 2, a little activity against 4, and there's no activity against 3. And they are only FDA-approved for genotype 1 at this time. So question number three is, what did we learn from the phase 2-3 HCV protease inhibitor studies? Did we learn that ribavirin sparing regimens are possible, that interferon sparing regimens are possible, that when you use a PI in combination with standard of care in genotype 1 treatment-naive patients, that you can achieve SBR in less than 48 weeks? All of the above or none of the above? Okay, so some of folks say all of the above, and then a majority of folks say number three, which is that we can shorten the course of therapy, and that is the absolute right answer. So at this point in time, based on the data for PIs at least, um, there was no chance to spare ribavirin. I'll show you the data for that. Uh, interferon sparing was also not possible and really was not attempted given the monotherapy, the poor response with monotherapy. Um, but that clearly certain patients can achieve cure in 24 weeks, and that's really uh, I think how we're going to help a majority of the patients, at least with this first round of drugs. So this is a very quick summary slide. I know it's a bit busy, but it was really just to get us to the phase three, but to show you some of the data that you wouldn't see if you only looked at the phase three studies. So in the top panel here, we have the SPRINT-1 study. This is Bocepervir, studied in HCV genotype 1 treatment-naive patients. Um, in green is standard of care. In red is triple therapy. So the things that I want to point out here with Bocepervir was that they tried to compare shortened courses of therapy um, as well as a full 48 weeks of therapy. And then the other thing that you can see here are these two green bars for two of the arms, which are what was called a lead-in phase. And this is the use of PEG and RIBA for four weeks prior to the initiation of the directly acting antiviral. The reason behind this was that um, there, was, there was concern about development of resistance. Um, and the idea was that if they could give patients PEG and RIBA up front, drop the viral load, that maybe they would decrease the development of resistance in those patients before the addition or with the addition of the directly acting antiviral. Um, so these are all compared to standard of care. You can see that clearly they perform better than the standard of care, that overall the patients who received the longest course of triple therapy seem to do better. Um, and that while you can't tell that this here, it did seem, although not statistically significant, that the patients with lead-in did have fewer uh, resistance uh, mutations develop. So what went forward for Bocepervir was the use of a lead-in phase, and that is part of the package insert, that it's used with a lead-in phase, um, which is very different than telaprevir. Um, what you can also see very clearly is there's lots of red here. Um, when you look at the telaprevir studies, both the PROVE-2 and the PROVE-1, so these are both phase 2, again, treatment-naive HCV genotype 1 patients, 
um, you can see that there's less red, and that's because for telaprevir, they studied the use of only 12 weeks of triple therapy, followed by then courses of standard of care to complete either a full 48-week course of therapy, a 24-week course of therapy, and you can actually see here that there are two that only have very short red bars. So they attempted to do 12 weeks of triple therapy alone. Um, and you can see here that in the U.S. study, um, that performed worse than the standard of care. Interestingly, in the European study, that same arm performed quite well and was actually similar to the full 24 weeks of treatment. Um, however, given the very poor response in the, U in the U.S. cohort, um, this did not move forward. The other important point here is this yellow bar. So this was actually the attempt to use ribavirin sparing. This was telaprevir and PEG alone for 12 weeks. And you can see that it performed worse than the standard of care. This is primarily driven by about a 50% rate of virologic um, failure due to resistant mutations. So ribavirin seems to play a role here in protection of resistant mutants. So what moved forward here was the idea of a 24 weeks of treatment um, uh, in a response guided therapy uh, arm. So this is just to now hone in on the phase three studies. We're gonna start with bocepravir. Um, and this is really just to show you how these things were designed. So there are basically three arms here. We have the standard of care, which was 48 total weeks of PEG and RIBA. You then have a response-guided therapy arm, and this is going to be the way that these drugs are used. So a patient um, receives lead-in. They then get an, they, the bisoprevir is added at week eight of treatment. If they have an undetectable viral load, this is similar to that, uh, that RVR, um, but because there's a lead-in, that RVR gets bumped up to eight weeks instead of four. Uh, if you're undetectable, then you could either receive only 24 additional weeks of triple therapy or you went on to receive an additional 24 weeks of PEG and RIBA. So this was basically a total of 28 weeks versus a total of 48 weeks. And this was compared to a total of 48 weeks with a lead-in plus a 44 weeks of triple therapy. And what you can see here is that this was actually a study that was stratified by ethnicity, patients of uh, European descent versus patients of African descent. So we'll focus here. In the green bars, we have the SBR rates. In the blue bars, we have relapse rates. So you can see that response-guided therapy or the prolonged course of therapy performed equally well at about 70% cure rates. In the African descent patients, you can see that, again, there is significant benefit over the standard of care, but not quite the benefit that you're seeing in the patients of European descent. Um, so this is good news, but still means that there's something we have to figure out here as to why the African descent patients are not responding as well. And that could very well be in part driven by that IL-28 polymorphism. Um, and you can see that part of this is also driven by higher relapse rates in that group. One thing that I really wanted to point out was the role of the lead-in phase. And many folks are talking about this in, in terms of how we may use this clinically. So there was very interesting data that actually came out of the SPRINT-2 study, or the SPRINT-1 study, which was the phase two of the Seprevir. So what we have here in green are patients at four weeks before the Seprevir was added who had less than a one log 10 decline, or patients in the blue bars who had a greater than one log 10 decline. And you can see a very clear difference here. Um, patients who have interferon responsiveness do extremely well with almost 80% cure rates with the addition of bisoprevir, but patients who don't are achieving cure that's closer to 30 to 40%. These patients, I would add, have 30 to 50% rates of resistance when they complete their therapy. So I think these are patients where you really want to have a true conversation as to whether or not you're really going to add on that drug, and I think that should probably be driven by how much liver disease they have and whether or not they can wait for further therapies. 
um, because they may not benefit as much as they think they will based on what they hear or read in the newspaper. So now this is the phase three for telopravir. This is the advanced study. Again, the design is actually quite similar. Um, it looks confusing because they actually attempted to study telopravir for eight weeks. So initially, obviously, telopravir was being studied for 12 weeks. As many of you may have heard, there's a pretty mean rash that develops with telopravir. Um, it tends to happen a little bit later in the course of therapy. Their hope was that maybe they could shorten the therapy to eight weeks and get around the severity of the rash. Um, and that is why they actually included that arm in the study. Uh, but otherwise, what you have is standard of care compared to 12 weeks of triple therapy followed by 12 weeks of standard of care, so 24 weeks total. And then in a response guide, and, and, and I can show you that the response was, again, close to 70, or a little over 70%. The eight-week arm actually did very well, was close to 70%, but this did not move forward um, in the phase three. I think what's helpful, though, is if you're treating these patients and they develop a severe rash that progresses and you have to stop the telopravir, but you get past eight weeks, you can feel that you've probably gotten a lot of benefit out of that drug. And then there was a response guided therapy arm again. And so this goes, um, any patient who completed 12 weeks of therapy um, at week four, if they were undetectable, again, there was the attempt to shorten to either six months or 48 weeks of treatment. And you can see here that patients did extremely well with the shortened courses of therapy with cure rates of almost 90%. What this means is that for both of these drugs, close to 50% of patients can be treated for 24 weeks and be cured. But the other 50% are going to require a year of treatment. And that's really important for our patients to understand. And then, and then I lastly wanted to show you um, the data for treatment experience patients, which may be a lot, of the, a lot of the patients that we have in our clinics currently. This is the real eye study. This is um, for telaprevir. I want you to focus really only on the yellow bars and the gray bars. Um, yellow bars are patients who receive telaprevir. Gray are patients who receive standard of care. Relapsers have a cure rate of about 80%. Patients who are partial responders still achieve a cure of about 60%. And then those null responders who have minimal interferon responsiveness have a cure of 30%. And again, these patients, have 30 to 50% chance of developing resistance if they're treated. So these are really patients that you only want to treat if they have significant liver disease. If they can wait, you're going to want to wait until you have at least dual or triple or even quadruple therapy. The data is quite similar for bocepravir, the RESPOND2 study. Nulls were excluded, but if you look at the relapsers and the partial responders, um, relatively similar results. I will add that for the REALIZE and for the treatment for the package insert, this is 48 weeks of treatment. There is no response guided therapy. There is no shortening. For the responder for bocepravir, if patients actually achieve a suppressed viral load by week eight, you can shorten um, the bocepravir to 36 weeks, but they still get 48 weeks of total treatment. So for most of these patients, they're looking at a year of therapy. So the reason I put this in was simply for you to have as a tool because it's very confusing in terms of the differences in the design of these studies. And so you can kind of look at this to determine the differences between the studies and how you would maybe use the virologic kinetics to make decisions and how to treat these folks. These are all, um, they're both dosed three times a day. Um, there's a lead-in phase for bocepravir, not for telaprevir. Again, response guided therapy for bocepravir is determined at week eight. For telaprevir, it's at week four. Um, and I will say that, uh, that the, and I'll, actually I'll get to the stopping rules, triple therapy for bisoprevir is actually 24 or 36 weeks. That's per the package insert, so that should have been updated, and that's my fault. Um, so it's a longer triple therapy um, than telaprevir, which is uh, 12 weeks. And then getting to the stopping rules, so if you look at the package inserts for bisoprevir, there is a 12-week stopping rule. If a patient does not achieve a viral load of uh, less than 100, then they should be discontinued on therapy. 
For telaprevir, it's quite different and I think in a way almost more helpful. If a patient does not achieve a viral load of less than 1,000 by week four, they should be discontinued, which means, you know, patients who um, are having any significant viral replication should be discontinued on telaprevir and would only get past a four-week time point, um, which will significantly decrease the risk of developing resistance for those patients. So now we have, and um, um, there's actually a question missing, which was actually supposed to be um, do the directly acting antivirals improve the adverse event profile for patients? Um, but, uh, and the answer was no. So now the follow-up question was supposed to be, what are the most limiting AEs that were reported out of the phase two and three studies for the HCVPIs? Um, was it diarrhea, anemia, rash, both anemia and rash, or all of the above? And I think I've already given you one of these. <laughs> So we'll see how much you've heard about this. Yeah, exactly. So right answer is two and three. Um, uh, and, and that is actually the rash is for telaprevir, and we'll get to that. And then anemia is pretty significant for both of these compounds. So the next um, slide should be a table here. So this is just a summary slide showing you the primary AEs uh, related to these medicines. Um, so for telaprevir, again, I think by far the most notorious is the rash occurring in somewhere close to 40% of patients. This is a rash that actually can be managed quite well um, with antihistamines, with, uh, with uh, lotions, and with topical steroids, but still leads, at least in the phase three, to about a 10% dropout of patients um, and is a significant issue for this drug. Uh, puritis is also a significant issue, and anal puritis was actually a very common side effect from this drug, which can be very difficult to manage. For bosepervir, anemia was by far the most common side effect. Bosepervir allowed uh, the use of erythropoietin in their studies, or the, 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 and about 50% of patients required the use of uh, erythropoietin. These were, this was not allowed in the telopavir studies, and so patients were able to get through this without the use of erythropoietin. Um, it was also the second leading cause of dropout for telopavir, but was the primary reason, reason for dropout for bosepervir. So really things that are going to have to be watched very closely with very close monitoring of hemoglobins in these patients. So the last few drug slides I'm going to move through very quickly, and I really put these up just for you to know what the future holds. This is a very exciting um, uh, uh, protease inhibitor that's really a second uh, wave protease inhibitor. It's dosed once daily. It's highly potent. Um, and as you can see here, we only have the 12-week data, but close to 100% of patients are fully suppressed. It's 24 weeks of treatment, and the safety profile is very, very nice with no significant rash and no significant anemia. And I think this is really the future of what we hope to have to offer for these patients, and this will be moving into phase three. And I think something that patients, I mean, that we and the patients are very excited about. So now I want to turn to the um, other drug class that I think is very um, exciting and moving now into phase three study. These are the NS5B polymerase inhibitors. Um, very similar to the HIV world, there are nukes and there are non-nukes. Um, so, and it's really going to be the nukes that are the name of the game in HCV treatment, from what I can tell. So, the nukes bind the catalytic site of this polymerase. Of this, of this, uh, polymerase. It's highly conserved. Because of that, there, it's very uncommon for resistance to develop. It's only been seen in vitro. Um, and, it's, and these are active against all genotypes because this is conserved across all HCV genotypes. As opposed to the non-nukes, that bind um, allosteric sites on both finger, thumb, and palm regions. These are not highly conserved, very de rapid development of resistance, and they are specific to different genotypes depending on the allosteric site. Um, and so really it's the nukes, I think, that are going to be the star out of this class and are the 
ones that are being used in combination primarily with protease inhibitors and NS5A inhibitors. And so really exciting. So I wanted to show you one study of just monotherapy. So these are now BID dosed. Again, safety profile for this drug was very, very good. No significant um, concerns for safety. Um, and you're seeing this is only complete EVR, so 12-week viral suppression that's in the 80% range for patients. So, again, early data, very exciting and moving forward in phase three study. The NS5A inhibitors are, are the newest class that are out. This was actually uh, presented in Nature as the first in class. Um, also very potent and very exciting, but a kind of moderate barrier to resistance. But everyone believes that this will be a star as well in a combination therapy. And uh, the next few slides are really to show you what some of the examples and proof of concept are for combination therapies that have already been done. So again, this is just a table to highlight. Um, modeling studies have suggested that for a successful compound or a, a combination of compounds, we're going to need a four, a level of barrier resistance um, of four which means either a drug that has a very high barrier to resistance or what's more likely is a combination of several compounds that offers that barrier to resistance. And combination of high potency and high barrier to resistance is the most likely successful combination that we'll see. So there's now been proof of concept for several of these. This is combination of that nuke that I showed you earlier, as well as a protease inhibitor. These are patients who received only those two drugs for 14 days, and all patients fully suppressed and no patient developed resistance. These patients then received PEG and RIBA, and we have not yet heard the outcome of this study, uh, but, uh, but this was the first data that we had for combination of DAAs. Then I think probably the most exciting study, at least in my mind, that came out of the um, European liver meeting uh, in the spring was this study. These are null responders, people with minimal to no interferon responsiveness. There were two groups, group A and group B, 11 patients and 10, so very small numbers. These patients either received a protease inhibitor and an NS5A in combination alone, or they received all four, PI, NS5A, PEG, and RIBA. Four patients in this arm achieved what is called an SBR12. That's all the data they had. But 12 weeks out from 24 weeks, all these patients got 24 weeks of treatment, and four of these patients had continued suppressed viral load. So we'll hear whether or not they actually continue to achieve full suppression, but this may be the first example of a cure with an interferon sparing regimen. And then you can see that 100% of these patients achieved full virologic suppression and then their SBR12 um, was also was 100%. So, and these are again, null responders in 24 weeks. Just shows you how potent these compounds are and what the future holds for some of our most difficult to treat patients. So in the last few minutes here, I'm going to turn very quickly to co-infection and then to the role of IL-28, which is slowly, I think, um, losing its relevance in the era of uh, the directly acting antivirals. Um, so, you know, you all treat HIV, and obviously many of the patients that we treat are co-infected. And I think, although it's very exciting right now, uh, I guess I would try to, to give a word of caution about the use of directly acting antivirals in HIV-infected patients at this time. And the next few slides hopefully will support that statement. So this is the only data that we have in co-infected patients. It was presented at CROI. This is a pilot study, two arms, um, and this is the study of telaprevir in combination with PEG and RIBA in co-infected patients. In part A, or arm A, no patient was on antiretroviral therapy. None of them met criteria. They all had CD4 counts over 500, um, and therefore there were no issues with drug-drug interactions. In part B, patients were either on fixed-dose combination efavirenz, tenofovir, and emtricitabine, or on adizanavir, boosted with ritonavir, tenofovir, and either FTC or 3TC. Um, they all received 12 weeks of triple therapy and then 36 weeks total of PEG and RIBA for 48 weeks of treatment. There was no response-guided therapy arm here. Now, before I show you the data, 
I did want to talk about drug-drug interactions um, because I think it's highly relevant. And this is data that was also presented at COI. So this is for telaprevir. Telaprevir is both a substrate and a significant and very potent inhibitor of CYP34A. So all of the interactions that you know that you would have with a CYP34A inhibitor and or a drug that use, utilizes that enzyme for metabolism are very clear and obvious. Um, these drugs are, at least for the package insert, are um, contraindicated with at least lovastatin and simvastatin. There's significant concerns of interactions with azoles, with warfarin, with anticonvulsants. Um, and so it is going to be very difficult, I think, in terms of managing this. I will recommend anyone who wants further data, if you Google telopavir and package insert or bosepavir and package insert, you can get the package insert and look at all the drug-drug interaction data and the relative contraindications for medications. Just to focus quickly on the ARVs, um, which I think are most relevant to us, you can see here that the, so this is the effect of telopavir on the drug that we're studying. And I think the most important to look at here are darunavir and fosamprenavir. Significant AUC declines. Because of this, in the package insert, these drugs are recommended to not be used concomitant with telopavir. And then you can also see here that for efavirenz, combination with efavirenz and telopavir led to an almost 50% decrease in the exposure of telaprevir. Because of this, telaprevir requires a higher dose in a patient who is HIV positive um, and, and on efavirenz. So they need a dose of 1125 instead of 750. It would be three pills instead of two, and that is critically important in a patient who's on efavirenz. But this is all the data that we have, and again, very limited in terms of actual inpatient studies, and that's why I would say that only a patient who has significant liver disease and truly cannot wait should we be offering treatment to these patients given the significant drug-drug interactions and risk. This is for bosepravir. Bosepravir is a little bit more interesting in that it is a, it's primarily a substrate of the autoketoreductase uh, enzyme, which actually does not have significant issues with drug-drug interactions, but it also is a substrate of the, CYP4, the CYP34A, and it is a very potent inhibitor again. So the same issues in terms of drug-drug interactions and the contraindications with statins, et cetera. Um, I think what's most concerning to me, at least, is that you only can see a list of ritonavir, tenofovir, and efavirenz here. No other drug-drug interactions with the other protease inhibitors. Um, and so we have really limited data of the safety of this drug in patients with HIV. You can also see that, again, there was about a 50% decrease in the C-min for efavirenz in patients um, uh, receiving bosepravir. Because of that, efavirenz is listed as a contraindicated drug in combination with bosepravir until we have further data. And so here's the actual data from the study. Um, and, and again, I, that was like the, you know, on the, the downer side of me, and now this is the, uh, the upper side of me, um, which is that the data was very exciting. So this is complete EVR. In purple here are all comers. In green were the patients who did not require ARV therapy. Blue is efavirenz, and the, light, the lavender is patients on atazanavir. Um, and so you can see that 68% of patients overall achieved a full uh, viral suppression by week 12 which is clearly highly improved compared to the standard of care. But again, this is a total of 30 patients on ARV therapy, and therefore I think until we have further data, we need to be very wary of using um, these uh, drugs together. But I also believe that it shows that we have great hope for our HIV-infected patients, that they may be able to achieve similar cure rates as patients that are HCV monoinfected. 
And so lastly is the data for IL-28. This comes up a lot, which is why I put it in here. And this data was presented at ESOL as well. What role will IL-28 play now that interferon and ribavirin are only part of the compound or part of the therapy? This is um, for bocepravir. This is for tilaprevir. I think the take-home point is in, rent, in, in, in the multivariable analyses for these studies, IL-28, believe it or not, remains the most predictive baseline factor um, for the ability to achieve a cure, even with the directly acting antivirals, just these two. Um, but I think ultimately, once you have these patients on drug, it's that four-week time point that helps you the most, but certainly could help you in determining which patients maybe, I would argue, would benefit from further risk certification in liver biopsy and the decision as to whether or not to wait or to move forward with treatment. You can see here that patients that carry the most favorable hap uh, genotype have cure rates that are very, very high in the 80% range. The patients that carry the less favorable are the ones who benefit the most from the bocepravir, um, but you can see that those cure rates are a little lower, although I think many would argue are still very, very good and certainly would not be a reason to not offer this patient therapy, but maybe would just be a reason to have a, a better discussion with the patient so that they understand the reality of the possibility of cure. So I'm going to end this with a case. Um, so this is a 45-year-old African descent male with HCV monoinfection, genotype 1A, viral load over 800,000. He has no contraindications to interferon or ribavirin therapy, and he just recently read an article in the New York Times saying that these drugs have been FDA approved and there's a 70% cure rate in six months. So when you sit down with him in the clinic, what do you tell him? That you need more information before you can tell him how long his treatment course will be and what the next best step is? That you recommend a liver biopsy to determine if treatment is necessary? You agree and say, yeah, these drugs rock. I'm going to go ahead and treat you. Let's get started as soon as they're available in the clinic. One and two or none of the above. Let's see what everyone thought. So four, one and two, absolutely. And so I would very, very much agree. And I think one really is essentially the same thing. And I think when these drugs were, you know, when we first started talking about these drugs and seeing the results, everyone was very excited that, oh, we're going to have cure rates similar to genotype two and three. We don't need to biopsy. Let's just treat everyone. And there's a reality here, which is that a majority of patients still require a year of treatment. There are significant adverse events. We have limited data in HIV-infected patients. And so really risk certification remains very important, at least at this point in time, in genotype one patients. So I appreciate your attention. I know I've been a little bit over, and I'm happy to take questions, I think, at the end when Dr. Sherman is done.